Hey, welcome to our next session, reading through the book of Mark. Uh, today we are going to be finishing off the rest of chapter 10, which leaves us just another six chapters to go. And things are going to really heat up because obviously towards the end of the gospel, we're going to be covering the details of Jesus's trial and then his death and his resurrection, all very central to our Christian faith, but also very famous portions. Right now, we're kind of coming towards the end of Jesus's public ministry, his teaching and the different acts that he does. So let's get straight into it today. Mark chapter 10 verses 32 to 34 to kick us off. They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So we read that the disciples continued to follow Jesus, not just the twelve, but a whole crowd. And it describes them as astonished and afraid. What are they astonished and afraid about? Well, we do need to read this in context. And so if you remember to our last session, we read about how Jesus had given two passion predictions so far. And he began to teach them about the culture of the kingdom, how it was upside down, how it was last that would come first and the first would come last. And, and he, he had explained about his mission as the Messiah, how he needed to die, how he needed to suffer at the hands of uh, the religious leaders as well as these Gentiles the Romans he was predicting his death and so the astonishment probably indicates that something was beginning to sink in for the disciples that something that was unexpected as opposed to how they probably thought the Messiah was going to come how he was going to come how he's going to turn the Roman Empire over we've mentioned this expectation on multiple occasions but maybe they were beginning to see that the work of the Messiah wasn't going to be overthrowing the Roman Empire but it was something else. And so maybe Jesus sensed that because these things were beginning to sink in, he could perhaps help them through by giving us the third passion prediction. Remember, Jesus often would speak in parables and he would then teach his disciples plainly what was going on. This time around, he just simply takes the 12 and he tells them very plainly, we are going to Jerusalem and this is what is going to happen. I am going to be mocked. I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be killed. Now, this mirrors echoes what, it, what uh, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 50 verse 6, which says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Now, I just want to make a note here. Uh, that Isaiah, which I just read, is often called the fifth gospel because Jesus is seen quoting from Isaiah so often. And also the, the account of events that took place, really, the book could be a, a fifth account of Jesus' life. Not just Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but Isaiah itself contains so many references to Jesus' life. This is one of the reasons why we can be so confident that the person of
of Jesus was divine because Jesus fulfilled so many prophecies. Isaiah wrote about Jesus centuries, at least four, maybe five centuries before Jesus lived on the earth. And for Jesus to have fulfilled all of these prophecies, the probability is that he is exactly who the law and, 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 the, uh, and the prophets were looking forward to. We can have such confidence that Jesus carried out the mission of the Messiah according to what God was wanting to do in the redemption of mankind. Personally, my Bible reading, I'm about to head into the book of Isaiah. I'm really excited to see how the life of Jesus is reflected in all of those prophecies. There's going to be, personally, uh, a little challenge and something that I am setting for myself in the coming days. But so here we have it, the third passion prediction, perhaps given to the disciples because they were more ready to receive it. So let's read on to see the disciples' response. Remember, I said this previously. When Jesus gave uh, the passion prediction, it was often followed by a skewed understanding from the disciples, which Jesus would then correct. So this time round, the third time round, what's going to happen? Let's read on in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Jesus, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let, us, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. <laughs> the disciples still don't get it, do they? They're still fighting about who's going to be greatest, who's going to get the glory, who's going to sit at Jesus' left and right. To sit at Jesus' left and right would mean that they are in places of honor with Jesus. And here we have James and John, two of the three of Jesus' inner sanctum, the ones who got uh, to see the transfiguration. And they come to Jesus pretty brazenly and almost childishly. I don't think that this is meant to be how we approach Jesus with the faith of a child, but this is pretty childish behavior. They come to him and say, hey, Jesus, can you do what we ask for? I'm not going to tell you what it is. You have to say yes first. Oh my gosh, this, this, this little passage almost makes me laugh. Jesus had just predicted his death and resurrection. And here they go thinking about themselves again. They made it about themselves again and, and that is kind of annoying when you when you read through these gospels and you think about these men that got to travel with Jesus and yet their thinking and their perspective is still so wrong but yet so human isn't it can I just pause and ask you to think about why you approach Jesus why are you listening to this video why are you doing this study and maybe you're doing this because 
you know, I followed you up and told you that you needed to be part of a lift group. Perhaps that's the case. I hope not. I hope that there's something uh, deeper in you that is um, desiring to learn and to, to grow and, and to understand what the, the Bible is saying. But are we a little bit like James and John here? That, that we, we come to Jesus and, and we're looking for what Jesus could give to us. Jesus and talking about his death and resurrection and all of that is awesome. And, and, and we go on to think, okay, so what are the breakthrough do you have for me, Jesus? What, what, what are the blessing do you have for me? What kind of requests and demands are you approaching Jesus with? Is it personal success, personal position, personal glory that you approach Jesus for? And, and be really thinking about this because I'm not just talking about, you know, becoming the, uh, a millionaire, richest man. For you, maybe it's just like, I don't know how my finances are going to go this week. And I, you know, I'm asking Jesus for breakthrough in that regard. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with these personal requests. But is there anything else besides all of this personal, what is it in, what's in it for me type questions? When you ask Jesus for breakthrough, why is that breakthrough so necessary for you? Maybe let me put it this way. Why do you want to know Jesus? Why do you want to get closer to him? If all you're wanting from Jesus is simply a leg up, once you get that leg up, you're going to leave. I think that's what happened to so many of the crowds as they followed Jesus. And maybe that's why Mark records that the crowds were afraid because they, they, they wanted their leg up. They wanted to see what they were going to be able to receive. And, and they weren't sure whether they were going to receive what they wanted to receive. But it's also kind of interesting because the way that Jesus responds to James and John wasn't to mock them. It wasn't to tell them off. Perhaps Jesus was still okay with the fact that they came to him. Anyway, I hope that when you have a true understanding of who Jesus is, you're going to get closer to Jesus because he is the ultimate prize. Not because of what he's going to give to you, but because Jesus is the ultimate prize. If Jesus isn't the ultimate prize for you, I'm hoping that this study would at least draw you out to, to, to decide, to study, and to understand who Jesus is. Because this is the study of Jesus anyway. That is our Christian faith. That's what our Christian faith is all about. Anyway, Jesus answers James and John by telling them that the way to glory is paved with suffering. He said, can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? Can you take on a similar mission to me? And James and John simply say, bring it on. Yes, we can. They were pretty brave. Let me just say that these two men went on to suffer greatly for the kingdom. James was actually the first person to be martyred um, in, in, um, in, in, in the history of Christianity. John, on the other hand, possibly died of natural causes at the end of his life, living a pretty full, long life. But that, that, that some of us forget that along the way he was persecuted greatly. Christian tradition states that, that John was burned alive in a pot of oil. 
He was placed in a pot of boiling oil because he was a Christian. Now, for some strange, miraculous reason, our tradition actually, the stories that have been passed down for years says that John was actually unharmed by this boiling oil. I don't know whether he felt the pain, I don't know whether he felt the hurt, but when it also says that he was exiled to the island of Patmos, he didn't go for a beach holiday, he was exiled to a, an island prison. And, and he lived there for many, many years. John suffered great persecution because of his faith. These two, these two did drink of the cup that Jesus drank with because of their call for the kingdom. Are you willing to do that? Is that something that you would come to Jesus for? And, and, and how, what would it be like to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, I want breakthrough. And then Jesus says, yeah, you're going to suffer for the kingdom. Are you going to go, uh, well, this is not for me, then I'm going to leave. For James and John, they were saying, yeah, no, I'm going to stay. And they actually live that call out. Notably, Jesus doesn't mock them for their ambition, but he redirects it. He tells them that the Father has prepared, prepared these places of, glory, of honor and it's not for Jesus to simply state who should take them. Now, that's actually a little bit of a difficult uh, theological um, issue because it seems to indicate that God had predestined certain people for places of glory. And um, we don't have time to deal with the fullness of this topic, but let me just state that one perspective we need to carry whenever we read about issues of predestination in the Bible is that God exists outside of our time. For us, maybe when we think about God preparing a place for someone, our picture is that He chooses someone to honor and then those people live out exactly what God had planned. They are robots and they don't have much of a choice as to live that life out for God. However, I think a more accurate picture is that God knows beginning from end. He's outside of time and he sees both beginning and end all at the same time. What does that look like? Well, we're not God and so we can't understand. We are shackled to time. We cannot understand this concept of being outside of time, but God knows everything that takes place within time from beginning to end he knows every life and how they pan out he knows every choice that we are going to take and does that mean that we don't have choice no i don't think that we don't have choice because the bible includes so many um, different passages that describes how we have responsibility for our choices but it's just that god knows God knows and He has already prepared these places because He knows who's coming. He, 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 he's seen what is going to take place on this earthly spectrum and therefore He has already prepared because He knows the life that we are going to live. In some ways, while that might be a little bit scary for us, I think in many other ways it's comforting for us that God knows how sinful and how selfish we are, but yet He would still choose to die for us that, and that His one death is sufficient to cover the sins that I have committed and the sins that I will still commit. That His one death washes over all of time and all of my sins when I choose to come under His grace. Anyway, we do need to move on. The rest of the disciples get angry because Jesus seems to indicate that James and John have a chance of being great and they weren't told off maybe. Um, 
But Jesus simply redirects them again. Remember, passion prediction would lead to this exclamation or uh, this uh, uh, experience where the disciples would show how they not really understand what Jesus is trying to teach and Jesus would then redirect them. And in this redirection, Jesus tells us that each and every one of us are to be servants. The word servant in Greek is called diakonos. And the word carries the meaning of one executing the commands of another. And in our Western mindset, this is probably quite difficult because what Jesus is saying is that to be great in the kingdom, to live out according to the kingdom's culture, we have to get used to taking orders. <laughs> That's the simple fact of the matter, that, that our lives are not about what I desire and my commands, but is about the commands first of God, the Father who, uh, you know, Jesus says, especially in John, when you read the Gospel of John, Jesus, Jesus says many times, if you love me, follow my commands. You show me that you love me by following my commands. By being a servant of the kingdom, I am saying I will follow the commands of my God, my sovereign King. But it also goes on, Jesus goes on to show us that we are also meant to then be serving one another, to take the commands from one another. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that we are just to be doormats, but when we see the needs of others, we take that on as a, as a command for my life in order to live out and to support, to encourage, to build up, to believe that someone else can uh, encounter the life of Christ uh, through our works, through our service. And this is a huge part of the kingdom. How will all men know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, by loving one another, by serving one another. This is the culture of the kingdom. And Jesus demonstrates this by being a ransom for us. This is a very important theological statement because it gives us a picture of what Jesus accomplishes. It is a picture of substitutionary payment for our sin. Sin demands a penalty, and a penalty is death. Uh, Paul the Apostle writes about this in Romans. And Jesus' Jesus's substitutionary death is what releases us from the curse of sin. The ransom for my sin has been paid. My life is no longer subject to sin, and I should be careful not to willingly subject myself to sin again. Another thought is, is this idea of a ransom, is, is that my life has been set free, but it also means that I have been purchased. Jesus' life and death bought my freedom, but he's also bought my life. My service to Jesus is not to earn anything, but it's because he has chosen to purchase my life with his. This is a foundational concept of our Christianity. The life I live, I live by faith. Faith, why? Because I live, because I believe that my life has been purchased at the price of Jesus' life. I can trust Him, follow His directive, follow His teaching, follow His commands. I can serve Him because He has willingly given His life to purchase mine. This is the gospel. 
How does it make you feel? Or, 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 what does it elicit in you? This should be something that's completely exciting, but it should also give us sober perspective of what, what our lives are about. You know, like chasing a career, chasing a certain lifestyle. No, that's, that's not what we are meant to be doing. My life has been purchased at the cost of my God's life. That should reorient everything that we are living for. That's the ransom that Jesus has paid. All right, we need to move on. Mark chapter 10, 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and called him and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped up to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received a sight and followed Jesus along the road. You know, this is actually a really hopeful passage. After each of the previous passion predictions, we encountered the skewed understanding of the disciples, even in this time. And, and, and things have not really worked out well with those passion predictions. It seems like Jesus really is a stumbling block. That, that, that his life and his teaching really doesn't connect with people in the sense that people just don't get what God is all about. But here we have an episode of a healing that takes place and it takes place with great faith. And that should be quite exciting. I think Mark is showing us that, that while many people don't get what Jesus is about, there are people that do. And this is an example of one. And this is an example for each and every single one of us. Firstly, we hear that they came to Jericho and then they were leaving Jericho. Now, Jericho is, is a very significant city. Uh, this is a significant city because it was the first city uh, that Joshua, back in uh, the Old Testament, if you will, uh, in the book of Joshua, leading the Israelites into the promised land. They had done the Exodus. They had done the wilderness time and they had now entered into the promised land. And when they entered into the promised land, the first city they came to was Jericho, with his massive walls. And, and God tells the Israelites who very faithfully obeyed this work to march around the city walls once a day. And then on the seventh day, they marched seven times. And then they lifted a shout of praise to God and the walls came down. And it became the first city uh, that, that uh, the Israelites took in the promised land. It was a claiming of the promise. Now at the end, of that in um, Joshua 6, um, we read that uh, Jericho was never meant to be rebuilt. It was meant to be left as ruins. It was meant to be left as a testament to God leading his people into the promise. They are not to settle at the first port of call in the promise. They are meant to be going further in. They are not meant to ever come back to this place. It is meant to be a monument to God's 
faithfulness and his promise. And, and Joshua uh, uh, states a curse that whoever rebuilds Jericho, it would be at the cost of um, their firstborn son. And we read in 1 Kings 16 that during the reign of the most evil king of Israel, King Ahab, Jericho was rebuilt at the cost of this man's firstborn son. King Ahab was also one that introduced uh, a, a crazy idol worship which includes child sacrifice. Basically, what we are reading here is that this Jericho wasn't supposed to be. It wasn't in God's plans. That city was meant to be sacked. It was supposed to be uh, taken away. Uh, it was only supposed to be a stepping stone. It wasn't supposed to be a place of where people camped. And Jesus had just come in and then he was leaving. And upon leaving, there was a beggar on the side of the road. His name is Bartimaeus. And, and, and he shouts out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Saying Jesus, son of David. Son of David means that this blind beggar actually understood that Jesus is the Messiah. This was a confession of his faith. And the crowd saw him as a nuisance, a bother. They told him to shut up, that a rabbi has got no time for a blind beggar. But Jesus stops and calls out to him. At this, the crowds changed their tune. They said, oh, oh, the rabbi is calling you. Let me just say this very quickly. Don't let the crowds tell you whether you can call out to Jesus or not. It doesn't matter if you are blind. It doesn't matter if you don't understand. It doesn't matter if you are in the wrong place. If you call out wholeheartedly to Jesus, he will always turn to you. And so Jesus asks Bartimaeus what he wants. Is it interesting that Jesus always asks us what we want? But I think it's important here because even though we know that Bartimaeus is blind, we don't know whether he's happy being a beggar and blind. We don't know whether he was happy to continue in this lifestyle or whether he wanted something that would bring about radical change. Remember, as we have been walking through Mark, the whole idea of blindness is actually also a metaphor for how our spirit being is. Are we blind in our spirit? Do you have ears but do not hear? Do you have eyes but do not see? It brings back all of these passages that we have covered that so many people wanted partial sight or they did not even really want to receive the revelation of Jesus. Maybe Bartimaeus would have answered, you know what, can you just give me enough arms for the rest of this week because I just need a rest from all the begging that I'm doing. He could have said that, and I don't know how Jesus would have responded, but the good thing is for us is that we see that there is a man, a man who is sitting in the wrong place, a man who is sitting outside a city that should not exist, a man who is sitting outside a monument to a city that was rebuilt, that demonstrating the faithlessness of the nation. But even though he's sitting in this culture of this faithlessness, this place of faithlessness, he encounters Jesus, he confesses uh, the messiahship of Jesus, and then he asks for full sight. What does he do once he receives full sight? Remember, and just a quick note, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. This man could see before he could see. This man had eyes of faith that allowed him to see before his physical eyes were restored. But once his physical eyes were restored, perhaps, and I would say showing that his spiritual eyes were, were even further awakened, perhaps, he responds 
by following Jesus. So many times we read about people that don't follow after they receive their healing. Their response to the revelation of Jesus is temporary. Their response is, is sometimes rejection because Jesus is too hard to follow. But Bartimaeus goes, this, this man I have to follow. Can I encourage you that Bartimaeus is an example of the kind of disciple that we should learn to be. We can be sitting in the wrong place, outside a city that demonstrates our faithlessness. But even in that moment, know that Jesus is coming to you. Jesus walks past you. Are you going to call out? Are you going to ask for sight? Are you going to ask for full sight? And when you ask for full sight, do you have faith to receive it? And when you receive it, are you going to follow Jesus or not? I believe that there are great days coming ahead for each and every one of us where we can see and receive greater and fuller revelations of who Jesus is and what he is doing. I I, am excited for what Lyft is about to embark into. But we need disciples who are willing to shout out in the midst of a crowd that doesn't want us to shout, Jesus, have mercy on me. And when we speak to Jesus, we ask boldly and say, Rabbi, I want to see. I want to see you. I want to see all that you have for me. I want to see the fullness of your revelation. I want to respond to that revelation by following you. If that is you, can you just take a moment with me? I want to pray for you. Dear Jesus, I pray that that, that we have a heart to fully see to fully have our sight restored. God, I pray that we will not have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear, but we will have a heart to respond to you. I pray that we won't just partially follow, but we will fully follow you wherever you go. That your commands, that we will follow out, we will live out, that we will learn to serve, we will learn to live the life that you have called each and every single one of us to. I pray for the courage and the boldness to live that out. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today. Make sure you get into your lift groups. We've got lots to discuss from this week. Mm